WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM's Master of Business Administration is designed to accommodate the career needs of professionals across a variety of work organizations. More information at business.udmercy.edu. It's the Metro on 101.9 WDET. I'm Tia Graham, and this is your daily source for the news, arts, and culture that's moving our city and region. That's right, Tia. I'm Nick Austin here, and today on the program, Michigan state law allows some wrongfully convicted individuals to receive financial compensation for the time they spent improperly in prison. But some complain the law is not accomplishing its goals. We'll learn more about this issue later in the show. But first, on the Metro. Southeast Michigan is known for many things, but public transit is not one of them. People often complain about long wait times at bus stops or our patchwork of public transit systems that don't connect very well. As such, our region often can feel disconnected. Getting to the airport or to Detroit from the suburbs is still difficult if you don't have a functioning car. But all this could be changing. In our last elections, Oakland County residents voted to expand smart bus services. A new express bus lane from Detroit to the airport is currently being planned, and more money is being funneled to things like the Q-Line and the People Mover. So, what might public transit look like in 2024 and beyond? To talk about the new master plan being prepared by the Regional Transit Authority, we have Ben Stupka. He is the executive director of the Regional Transit Authority and director, Director Skupka. Welcome to the Metro. Thank you. So happy to be here. Awesome. So before we get into the master plan, for those who don't know, what is the Regional Transit Authority and what is it meant to accomplish? Sure. So um, the Regional Transit Authority was uh, established by the state legislature in 2012. Uh, Its role is to do four things. So uh, it plans, so it does a master plan and other um, other kind of strategic plans to move the region forward and identify different uh, strategic priorities. It funds, so all of the federal and state funding that flows to the region's transit providers comes through the RTA and its board. Uh, it coordinates with the uh, large transit providers, so that's DDOT in the city, SMART in the suburban communities, uh, Metro Detroit, uh, the ride out in Ann Arbor, the People Mover, the Q-Line, and, and a bunch of other smaller uh, providers. Um, and then it, it accelerates. So we uh, we identify things in our master plan, um, things that we, we know that the region wants to see in transit, and we pick those things up and we pilot them and we start new services and we try and kind of push, push the regional agenda forward. So those are the four main things that we do. Uh, broadly, we cover a four-county region, uh, so that's all of Oakland, Macomb, Wayne, and Washtenaw counties. Wow, wow. So just speaking broadly, what's the goal of the recent master plan and, and how does it differ from previous ones? Sure. So uh, we set this one up to be a uh, more of a roadmap of transit priorities in the region. Um, so it's something we do on an annual basis. Basis. It helps us collect feedback from the public, from our transit providers, and from others um, as to not only what they want to see in the future, but what's going on now. Um, and we've developed it to be more of a uh, action-oriented plan. So what can we do tomorrow? So not necessarily just fully focused on what is a 30-year vision for transit, but what can we, what do we want to do in 30 years and what can we do tomorrow um, or next year to to push this agenda forward and keep pushing it forward? 
And when I hear you say that, I think about the public feedback and I think about bringing all that together, of course, with the data and different things that you all are collecting and and you want to put this into action. So what does that look like for you all when you're putting these things into action? What can the public expect from different transit lines? Sure. So uh, what what we do is we, we, we collect all that information. Uh, we uh, identify priorities. So we have kind of 10 priority categories. And then we work to uh, look at what funding sources are available to us. Um, and there's, uh, you know, we're in a period where there's a lot of federal funding available. And we work with our providers and others to say, okay, we want to pursue a grant for this. We want to develop a pilot for that. So a good example of that is our current uh, D2A2 bus service, which, which connects Ann Arbor to Detroit. Um, so we've heard, you know, through the life of the RTA that there there is no transit connection. There was no transit connection between the cities of Ann Arbor and, and Detroit. Um, so two years ago, we were able to secure some grant money um, and uh, get some partnerships together and develop that service that's been running for two years. Um, we're seeing month over month increases on uh, in ridership, so it just kind of goes to show, um, you know, when you establish these services, these new services, people will use them. So, you know, we think about young people, we think about the people who are leaving or coming into this state and, and trying to retain young talent here in, uh, in, in, in Michigan. And right now, more and more young people want public transit. So how important is it to have good public transit uh, in, in order to attract people to the state? It's absolutely essential. Uh, I mean, it, uh, if you look at the governor's most recent uh, report, Growing Michigan uh, Council report, um, it identifies it as one of the absolute priorities for community building. Um, if you talk to any large employers um, that are looking to make um, you know, decisions about where they want to put their administrative centers or tech centers or, you know, or startups, they all want to be in dynamic cities that attract talent. Um, and having a, a robust transit uh, system, mobility system, I would even go further to say, um, is an absolutely core piece of that um, for, for that talent attraction. I always like to say transit also, um, if you start to think about other things we need, well, we want to attract young people. We also have an aging population, and their transit needs are a huge priority. So if you start looking at all the different needs we have in the region, having a robust uh, transit system is is kind of the center point of all of them. Right now, we're speaking with Ben Stupka, the executive director of the Regional Transit Authority. And I'm thinking about uh, just everything you're saying, of course, is making sure we have expanded services for all people, not just people we're trying to attract, but the people who are already here. Um, you know, what about the line to the airport if, you know, from, from the suburbs or, or any other place surrounding Metro Airport? What about those direct lines to the airport right now? So, uh, so we are starting a pilot uh, to connect downtown Detroit to the airport. Um, so that uh, we're, that will be starting at the end of March. Um, we have funding for about a year to kind of see how that service goes, um, see how it kind of interacts at the airport itself, um, how people use it. If it's successful um, and we can figure out a way to, to kind of bring more funding to it, um, you know, it's something we could potentially expand to other areas. Um, I do want to say SMART, the suburban bus provider, already does have a, a few bus routes that connect into the airport. Um, so we'll, we'll be adding in more of an ex- express, you know, what we call a point-to-point service with so d- downtown directly to the airport. Um, there actually already is a airport to Ann Arbor connection. So we're, we're starting to kind of build that, uh, build that out. And if the pilot works for the downtown, we can look at expanding it. All right. So the Detroit 
Department of Transportation. It's also doing its own studies. You all work directly with DDOT as well to increase uh, bus frequency and reliability. Does this mean taking lines along major corridors in Detroit or or having buses come more regularly on streets like Woodward and Michigan Avenue? Like, what do we imagine this looks like? Sure. So, uh, So the first and most important thing is there is almost nothing you can do to make transit better than to increase frequency. Um, that is the number one way to attract ridership, to increase reliability, um, is just to have the buses come more often. Um, so uh, DDOT is looking at kind of a tiered approach. So they'd be looking at increasing the frequency on the major major routes. So think your Grand Rivers and your Woodwards and your Michigans and your Crashits up, um, you know, up, uh, up to what it is uh, more than it is today. But they're also looking at some of their other more neighborhood routes and seeing if they can bring the frequency of those routes up. So you have an overall frequency increase. So you might have, say, for example, the Woodward bus uh, coming every 10 minutes and the Tyerman bus coming every, say, 30 minutes. Um, so you kind of look at doing it in tiers. But overall, across the board, it's uh, they're looking at a, a you know frequency increase across the board. And my last question to you is just about just the the the, the encompassing uh, idea here with just making sure that we bring in all people from all regions. As always, what do we need to do to pass a regional transit plan? You know, what do we need to get Macomb County residents on board? And is there a political strategy that the RTA is developing right now to get that done? Sure. So uh, I, I always like to answer this question by saying, you know, uh, I think there's a big misconception out there that Macomb um, is anti-transit or, or doesn't want to be part of the regional transit system. Um, they are. They were the first and continue to be the only county. Well, Oakland County is now all in as well, but they were the first county to be all in with the smart system. They've been that way since I've been working in transit. So they're, um, you know, so they're definitely, uh, you know, supportive of transit. Uh, what we're doing is just trying to uh, bring these small wins together. Um, develop these develop these different services, um, look for opportunities to do things out in the community. So I'll give two examples of things that we're, um, we're doing and planning on, on doing this space. Uh, one is we have a large federal grant that we're waiting to hear back on called, it's from the Reconnecting Communities and Neighborhoods program that would allow for a transit stop enhancements um, and reliability improvements on Gratiot, Woodward, Michigan, and Washtenaw County out in uh, connecting Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti. Um, so we, we worked with all the transit providers, all the county officials. We had over 70 letters of support for that grant. So we're waiting to hear back. Um, but that's a place where we can all start working together to make some improvements with some federal money. The other thing that we're trying to do is we're developing a smaller grant program called Access to Transit. Um, this would be working with local communities across the region um, to do small improvements at bus stops. So um, better crosswalks, sidewalks, um, just the small things that make it more convenient uh, for people to access the transit system. So those are some of the things that we're trying to do um, to kind of get everybody more integrated into what the RTA is doing, um, how to work more regionally. Um, and then uh, the hope is that that leads to the opportunity to you know, have a bigger transit ask for additional funding down the road. So definitely looking forward to seeing uh, the master plan in work pretty soon. Ben Stupka is the executive director of the Regional Transit Authority. Thank you so much for joining us on the Metro. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) 
This is the Metro on 1019 WDET. And coming up, we'll talk about why some wrongfully convicted Michiganders are not able to receive the financial compensation they believe they are entitled to under state law. It continues when we continue here on 1019 WDET. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at the University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new Master of Science degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. Admission is open to qualified applicants with a bachelor's degree in any field. Course selection is flexible with no prerequisites, four required courses, and six electives. Learn more at business.udmercy.edu. On 1019 WDET, this is your source for news, arts, and culture moving our region. I'm Tia Graham. I am here with Nick Austin. It's true. You are here with me. We're here with someone else. But before I tell you about this person who's going to help us out in the conversation, I want to get into a little bit of the law, something that uh, I've spent a lot of time in. And, you know, in our country, Tia, in order to send one accused of a crime to prison, the burden is on the state to prove guilt. It's not on the defendant to prove innocence, but what happens when the system fails? Well, in Michigan, to try and rectify the harm people who had their convictions set aside based on new evidence, uh, the harm they've suffered, we have what's called the Wrongful Imprisonment and Compensation Act, which can provide up to $50,000 for each wrongful incarceration, each year in wrongful incarceration. But currently, the law, which focuses on a narrow number of wrongful incarcerations, is confusing. There are some convictions that the state can have and overturn for a number of reasons, including things like inadequate assistance of counsel, official misconduct, but not necessarily innocence or a likelihood that the state thinks the person is more innocent. And it can be very confusing to navigate the system, especially with all of these competing factors. So what does it look like for someone who's trying to navigate the system? And why are some of those who've had their convictions overturned turned looking to change it? To learn more, we're joined by Anna Clark. Anna is an award-winning ProPublica journalist who lives in Detroit and recently wrote a piece about wrongfully convicted individuals, why they can't receive compensation in some cases, even after their sentences are overturned. Anna, welcome to the Metro. Hello, I'm so glad to be here. It's a new era for WDT. (laughs) (laughs) That is right, and you are part of the new era, so thanks for that. Uh, But to get into this conversation, before we get into some of the real technical aspects of this, and I went through it, it's kind of interesting, there's a real human element here that's also kind of how you got into this story. So before we begin, just tell us the story of the man Marvin Cotton Jr., one of the folks featured in your piece. Uh, What was he convicted of? How did he get it overturned? And the story of what he suffered after uh, that overturn. Sure. Thank you for starting with people, because it really this is really what it's about. Right. Um, So. Uh, Marvin Cotton is one of about 169 people who have been uh, uh, wrongfully imprisoned in Michigan and um, had their convictions, you know, overturned, dismissed, vacated, and, and, and have since been released. He was um, um, he he was here, he was here in Detroit when he was arrested in I think it was 2000 um, uh, for um, murder and. Uh, 
uh, that he didn't commit. And over um, over the twenty some years he spent in prison, you know, he had he was he was a young guy. He spent so he's he's spending more than half his life in prison. He was going through all this, you know, feeling like, you know, um, just trying to survive, trying to figure out how to like get somebody else to believe what he knew to be true. Um, eventually, the Wayne County Conviction Integrity Unit um, which, uh, in, reinvestigated his case, and um, they, both a prosecutor and a judge signed off, and he was released um, in November, or maybe it was October 2020. Um, so that was huge, right? You know, I mean, like, but it was also, you know, very daunting. He he talked a lot about um, just the challenge of like rebuilding your life when you're starting with nothing or even less than nothing. You know, like he, um, you don't like uh, these exonerees all have stories about you know how their like relationships are frayed or maybe they don't have any family anymore. They it's it, difficult or impossible to get a job or a place to live. Yeah, and, and let's <laughs> get impossible mm-hmm. to get a job, right? But your conviction has been overturned. Yeah. So. Because of whatever error, we'll get into that in a Mm -hmm. moment. You still end up with this record, even though you shouldn't. And that's probably for clerical issues. But it's something that's still trailing you and factoring in, even though the state says this conviction doesn't hold. Yeah, he said he said that like it was taking a while for like it to like even like get purged from his background check. So to find a place to live, he was like having to pay like much more than you should be paying for rent. Um, He was staying in a hotel for a long time that quickly went through what like little savings he had. He was um, borrowing a lot of high interest loans uh, just to get by, he was saying, um, you know, and trying to like. Um, kind of rebuild. But he also knew about this like compensation act. And so within a first few weeks, he put this application in thinking his case, you know, represented a clear injustice. Public officials both investigated and signed off on his getting out that it was a his trial had been fundamentally unfair, they found. Um, and uh, but it turned out to be a more complicated process than he expected. Yeah. And we want to get into that mm-hmm. right now because you've done a pretty deep dive into the Wrongful Imprisonment Compensation Act. Uh, how does it work and what's it aimed at trying to accomplish? Sure. Well, it's it's uh, it was a bipartisan bill um, signed in the last administration. It, um, it, it became official in 2017. Um, it's uh, uh, it, what it was intended to do is to like help folks like like Marvin, who are who are rebuilding their lives after they've had a, experienced a grave injustice. And of course, nothing ever makes up for it. You don't get nobody would trade years of their life for any amount of money. But like it, it was uh, but that but it's meant to help. Right. It was meant to like, um, you know, give people like something to start from. I think there's sometimes an assumption that if you were wrongfully convicted, you're eventually going to get some like massive legal settlement. Um, first of all, even if that they do, that often takes years. Um, and, and second of all, like that's a high bar to to to, to uh, clear, you know, like people you have to like prove an unconstitutional violation um, cause that wrongful conviction. Um, some, sometimes that's hard to prove. And a lot of, and sometimes there's not an unconstitutional wrong. Sometimes it was just a terrible mistake. Well, <laughs> so this is what I want to unpack a little bit more. To, to start with this question, you know, first of all, if you do your time, my instinct would be you should probably just, you're let back into society. You should be able to be a member of society, right? So that's its own yeah. issue. But in terms of what this law was trying to do, in my reading of it, mm-hmm. and whether you agree with it or not, it seems to be straddling a line of 
cases where we think there's innocence versus cases where, oh, there wasn't sufficient evidence or there was misconduct, right? This distinction between new evidence, which is something that they consider. You have to have new evidence that exonerates you more so than an error happened in the case. Is this what you found or what's the yes. distinction? And this is um, I, this is true with Michigan and also, you know, a lot of the other 38 states in D.C. that have some kind of compensation act also kind of wrestle with this. Uh, you know, the idea behind it for like the sponsor that I talked to about it at the time was, yeah, to like help out people who are wrongfully convicted. Right. Um, but there was a lot of people, lawmakers who were afraid that people who might have gotten out on a technicality that they might actually be guilty, that there might have some involvement, even if they didn't do the like actual thing. There was a lot of fear. And so they, it was written in this like really narrow way so that yes, not only do you need to like by a very high standard prove that like you're innocent, um, but you have to also have totally new evidence as the deciding factor for how and why your conviction was vacated. So yes, like you said, like if there, there's a lot of reasons why a wrongful conviction might happen. Um, and uh, a lot of those reasons, um, you know, um, have proven, you know, um, to be insufficient to count for full compensation yeah. under this law. Yeah, and even confusing mm-hmm. to some of our chief justices, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Like you write, for example, uh, uh, Chief Justice Bridget McCormick, who is a fabulous justice, writing how, hey, by the letter of the law, because this wasn't the deciding factor in overturning a case, which was based on, you know, something else, ineffective assistance of counsel or maybe uh, improper evidence was introduced, that will get you another trial. But that's not the same thing as new exculpatory evidence. Maybe a new witness came forward that was available at the time. No one saw that said, no, the guy who did it, he was wearing a blue shirt and that guy was wearing a red shirt. Different situation. If you have kind of these competing factors and the court finds, well, it's because of the improper case, you're not entitled to the wrongful uh, to the, the compensation. Is that what you found? Yeah. And that's and that's literally happened. I mean, like there's like there's in six years, there's been like five cases going to the state Supreme Court, um, which uh, related to this law because of how it's written and because of some of these challenges people are bumping into and making their case um, and, and their lives are really on the line. Like mm-hmm. so it's, it's, it's not it's not a small thing. So, yes, like there's like um, in some of these cases, you know, folks you know, clearly had their conviction overturned. They had like, it was, it was um, clearly a wrongful conviction. It was, that was vouched for by judges that were like assessing their wicked claims when their denial was challenged. But as like Justice McCormick um, and another justice who co-signed her statements were saying, you know, like, this looks clearly unfair. Yeah, <laughs> you know right, what I mean? Right. This like she's like she's like she's like it doesn't it right. doesn't seem to be like in some in one case yeah. there was new evidence right. that like led to this guy's um, wrongful conviction being reversed in like a second trial, but because like yeah. there was also some other errors yeah. that led to his conviction yeah. being reversed first, they're like too bad. Right. You don't he got nothing. Right, he got right. nothing. So getting outside of the technical mm-hmm. stuff before we have to let you go because I'm running short on time. This is a real fascinating issue, by the way. Uh, two questions. First of all, how many people are we even talking about here, right? What are the numbers of folks making these applications versus getting them? 
So that's a good question. Um, I was I, there's a researcher who I um, talked to who did some work on this. He says um, of the claims made, there was um, to date there have been about 68 percent who have gotten at least some compensation. And that's 169 wrongful convictions since 1989. Yeah, and and counting right, like, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like I mean, this is like presumably this is something that's going to sure. continue. But being for the an numbers, issue. I mean, it's kind of mm-hmm. a small number of yeah. people we're even talking about yeah. here. Where it's like whether we extend this. All right, I'm gonna let you get out of here. But before we do, close out. Uh, can you tell us how uh, Mr. Cotton's story finished out? Oh, well, that's nice to hear. Well, he did end up accepting a settlement for um, a portion of what he expected after three years and after um, a judge kind of sided with him. Um, he, he's now um, living in uh, Southfield. He's married. He wrote a book. Mm-hmm. He's out there doing a lot of speaking events and um, I think urging, like a lot of other exonerees, trying to help those yeah. who come after them. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Anna Clark, Anna Clark, I knew I was going to do it. Anna Clark, <laughs> award-winning ProPublica journalist who lives in Detroit. Anna, thanks for joining us on the Metro. So glad to be here. Thanks. See, see I'm not allowed to talk anymore. You take us away. Metro. And coming up, a college and trade fair in Detroit has been providing resources to the community for 25 years. We hear more about the event happening tomorrow, but first, let's take a quick look at the weather. It's partly sunny today with a high near 46 degrees. Winds in the north will be blowing 7 to 13 miles per hour, and it's going to be cold tonight. In the mid to low 20s, bundle up, turn the heat on. It's going to remain cold Saturday going uh, into Saturday once again. Sunny with a little bit of a chill there. 32 degrees is a high. And Sunday, it's going to warm up with a high around 48 degrees. Now, getting into the next story, Cinema Detroit was forced to close its doors due to rising rent prices in Detroit. But the organization is still screening films wherever they can find the space. MoCAD and Planet Amp have become temporary spaces for such screenings, but Cinema Detroit is still looking for a more stable home. Paula Guthat is the co-founder and curator of Cinema Detroit. She spoke with me about trying to find a new space, the need for an independent art house in the city of Detroit, and their latest screenings. We wanted to see films in the city and no one else was showing them. So, um, you know, we didn't want to have to keep going to the suburbs, you know, to see art films. And um, it really evolved into two things. We offered, you know, access to all kinds of films from some commercial films, you know, down to local screenings for filmmakers that are local. And then... Also, a lot of my programming was for and by people who've been historically excluded from the film industry. Cinema Detroit was one of the only film art houses in the city. Could you talk about the space and the community you all were able to build around Cinema Detroit? As far as bringing a wide variety of film, you know, to an area that now, since we aren't there, has, you know, less access to films than ever. And that includes now the Metro Detroit area where we've lost, you know, two other venues that for film um, being the main art and the maple. 
So, um, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, um, it, it's we're it's an, it's a bit of a film desert. Not a bit of it is a film desert, and it makes me really sad. Actually, we were in a situation where our landlord decided to sell the building, and we couldn't afford to buy it. It's really sad because to me, the best way to see a film is still in a theater with a lot of other people. It's dark. And that's all you can focus on. A thriller is more thrilling. A comedy is funnier. A sad movie is sadder. Like, it it just amplifies and focuses your attention so much to see a film in a theater. And I just want to uh, get into just the idea of preserving spaces like Cinema Detroit, Cinema Detroit and the Maple Theater and just having a space and a place for film enthusiasts to go in the city of Detroit. Yeah, yeah, that's what we were. That's what we were. I really believe that we tried and I think succeeded to create a community where, you know, film lovers of all kinds could go and, and see films. Um and I'm proud of the films that we showed and the community that we created. And I, you know, want to get back there. I want to be that, you know, to provide that space again. We have, you know, great memories of, of people coming in and really engaging with film, seeing something that really fired them up and, and people, you know, not only seeing it there, but having a space, our lobby to linger and discuss, you know, sometimes for hours on end. And another thing I'm proud that I did was putting together community discussions of films um, to provide context that it sometimes they really needed things like um, Black Panther and and Green Book. Um, You know, we got together with groups in the community to to kind of talk about sort of the implications of black panther like we had a panel on afrofuturism connected with that film we talked about there was a like a historical panel with green book that film was horribly named like there's no it should not have been called green book because it <laughs> didn't have very much to do with the green book at all so i some folks come in and discuss like what people really should know you know about green book we had people introduce films all the time i had filmmakers come in all sorts of ways in person but you know we did skype q a's as far back as 2014 we were just always trying to provide you know films and and discussion about film you know engagement around film in a way that i hope and i think was edifying for everyone and Paula, what are you currently screening and where can uh, audiences find them? Um, we're screening the five-time Oscar nominee, Anatomy of a Fall. The director, Justine Triet, is only the eighth woman to ever be nominated for Best Director. This is this Sunday. And then on March 10th, I'm screening a film that was heavily influential on Saltburn, so you should see it whether you love Saltburn or hated it. It's called The Draftsman's Contract. And Anatomy to Fall and Draftsman's Contract are both at Planet Ant in Hamtramck. And all the details are on our website, cinemadetroit.org.
That was Paula Goodhat, the co-founder and curator of Cinema Detroit, chatting with me a little bit about just what's been going on with her, Cinema Detroit, and some of the films that she's been able to continue to curate uh, throughout Detroit and Metro Detroit. You're listening to The Metro, the new show connecting Metro Detroiters through stories and conversations about the news, art, and culture affecting the city and our region. And coming up, we'll talk about a college fair happening at Second Ebenezer Church in Detroit. Keep it locked right here on The Metro. It's the Metro, helping you discover Detroit beyond the headlines and bringing you the voices and visions that are driving our city forward here on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin. And I am Tia Graham. The 25th Annual College Trade Fair is happening at the Second Ebenezer Church. It's happening tomorrow. Bishop Eggett L. Van is a longtime leader in the church and community. He spoke with me about adding trades to the college recruiting event and the importance of family. Well, it's literally been thousands of young people. We normally have eight, nine hundred people, uh, you know, students that come in to the college fair. And uh, since we expanded it to also being a trade fair and being an opportunity for people to be involved in skilled trades as well, it has increased. And so there are so many people I run into people all the time who are very successful in their careers and uh, they got their start at our college fair. Look at somebody on the side of you and say, neighbor, you don't really have a problem. All you need to do. Second Ebenezer Church, it's been there. It's been a staple in the community. Talk about having that foundation right there in the community that people can just go to for resources. Well, we look at ourselves as a hub, really. I mean, it's, it's, it's who we are. It's what we do. We've always been... Uh, really sort of at the vanguard of the community and meeting community needs, we believe, is a part of our charge, our mission, and our purpose. And so uh, we're always very excited about uh, uh, doing this in so many different ways. I mean, uh, the college fair is just one of, um, wow, uh, several dozen uh, impactful programs that we do in the community. But this is one that we're extremely proud of uh, because of the long-lasting effects that it has in the community with uh, young people becoming responsible citizens and uh, having their own families. And, you know, we've done it long enough where we now have people who are coming back with their children as well. And so that's really, really an added benefit. Personally, being a college grad, I know there are people out there who are working skilled trades who are making more than me. So why is it important for people to know that college uh, degrees aren't the end all be all? Well, it just isn't. And I mean, I think that what we are looking at is people discovering themselves, people actualizing their gifts and their, you know, the raw material inside of them, polishing that up into a way where it is profitable for them where they become, you know, um, valuable uh, additions to our city and to our society. And the skilled trades are certainly a way. When you have a trade, nobody can take that away from you. And it's always marketable. 
And so uh, not only skilled trades in terms of some of the construction type trades, but skills in terms of technology as well, which we know is ever expanding with AI and all of that. So we think that this is a very, very important. We added it five years ago. We think it's a very, very important part of how we reach young people and, and provide, again, pathways toward great careers. City officials and leaders, they often talk about retaining talent in the city of Detroit, bringing in new industries, but we need a workforce that's ready for those industries. So uh, how will trade shows and college fairs like this one help bridge the gap? Well, I think it's important. If you can see in our city cranes everywhere, you're seeing buildings, you're seeing construction, major construction going on in uh, our city, major projects being greenlighted in our city that are going to be happening for the next five, 10 years uh, that are going into the ground just now. Uh, They're going to be opportunities and uh, it's going to even bring more and more development and more and more opportunity uh, for people everywhere uh, to be involved. And so when we look at construction crews around town, when we see these cranes and these huge projects, What we really, really want is to have a representative group of people working on these major projects that we see in our community. But you got to be trained and you got to have skills and uh, you got to submit yourself to a process. So we're, we're trying to make sure that that process is made clear to young people and they're given a great, great opportunity to Saturday, February 24th, what are some things that people should know, parents, guardians, as well as uh, young people? Well, we certainly want the parents to come because there's on-site admissions, uh, there's scholarship giveaways, uh, there are workshops, financial workshops, so that the parents understand uh, what resources might be available for them uh, as their, um, you know, as their young people pursue uh, higher education or higher skills training. And so uh, we want the parents to come and want them to show their interest uh, in their own young people. And uh, it's going to be a great, great event. And we're looking forward. Uh, We want the whole entire city to know about it and to come. I know a lot of us, especially who were first generations going into college, didn't know about FAFSA, didn't know about some of the things that we could do in order to get into school and make it a little bit easier of a transition. So, of course, if you can lean into that a little bit more about just helping the parents and the whole family unit get ready for this. Well, it's a family affair, and um, I I think that the the quest for uh, higher education or higher careers is a family affair. Uh, The family needs to be involved, whatever that family is, and uh, they need to show concern uh, for these young people. You just can't allow young people to graduate from high school and say, hey, that's it. You know, you're on your own, figure it out, do what you need to do. No. Uh, families have to be engaged and involved in the lives and the trajectory of success for their young people. Mom loves the both of them. You see, it's in the blood. Bishop, you got L. Van will celebrate 47 years of pastoral leadership this year. The 25th Annual College and Trade Fair is happening tomorrow, February 24th. 
from 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. and it's happening at Second Ebenezer Church. Definitely take your family or your young people, whoever you want uh, around you, to this college fair. It's going to be helpful. Take your young people, or are they like under? Like you just got them in a bag, like a collection of young people? Uh, yes, that's <laughs> how I carry my nieces and nephews around, You're just in a very, little duffel. Very wise. They're just Tia. young people in my duffel bag. All right, right on. Taking them for experiences and, and teaching them the world. Hey, Tia, did you know that you're listening to the Metro on 1019 <laughs> WDE? Sometimes I forget. Sometimes. Co- coming up, we'll talk about whether it's fair to call President Donald Trump a fascist. Some reporting happening here from WDET. We'll look into a conversation our own Russ McNamara had next. Metro on 101.9 WDET, the show connecting you to news, arts, culture, and whatever else is moving Metro Detroit and our region. Once again, quick weather forecast today. Expect a high near 46 degrees. Tomorrow, Saturday, a little chillier with a high around 32. Then we'll start to see that warm-up picking up Sunday, a high around 48. Monday, mostly sunny with a high around 50. And Tuesday, expect a chance of rain, however, a high near 62. So I think the groundhog told the truth. Maybe, Nick? I don't know. You know, the little groundhog dude? I've never seen a groundhog in any of my college studies classes. I don't think he has the proper background to be a meteorologist. I don't think he's a meteorologist either, but you know, he said that it's going to be, you know, spring's coming up pretty soon. So that's what he said. I don't know who... Believe, you know. Evidence-based, Tia. We'll be able to track this and find out. You revisit me in about a month, and we'll see. And you know, it's funny you talk about evidence-based because, you know, this individual here. Well, we do have a political uh, a history professor to give us a little bit of input on Donald Trump. And our own WDET's Russ McNamara really got into this idea of fascism, as it's not something we equate with American leaders, but as a political ideology, fascism is not immune to any country, and it's not something we should take lightly. In recent years, more scholars have claimed that former President Donald Trump has used fascist language, and that's because he's positioned himself as a strongman, has claimed the media is full of lies, has blamed minorities for problems, and has turned to overturn, has tried to overturn America's democratic elections. Now Donald Trump is running for president again, and WDET's Russ McNamara looked into whether it would be fair to classify Trump's behavior as a fascist. He spoke with Ruth Ben-Ghiat, a New York history professor and the author of Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present. So Donald Trump was just in Metro Detroit for a rally ahead of the coming presidential primary. I'd like to get your thoughts on some of the things the former president is saying on the campaign trail. Sound fun? Yes. Excellent. So here is the first clip, and I found it very interesting. Every time the radical left Democrats, Marxists, communists, and fascists indict me, I consider it a great badge of honor. I am being indicted for you. Never forget. I'm being indicted for you. Never forget our enemies want to take away my freedom because I will never let them take away your freedom. I will not do that. What do you make of a statement like that? So one of the things that marks out strongmen, if you want to, if you have a politician and you see, you want to know, are they a strongman? Are they an authoritarian? One of the things they do is they play the victim, and they do this as a kind of insurance policy very early on, where they say that they're persecuted by, you know, and it's a changing cast of characters, because Mussolini did this, 
Erdogan did this, Silvio Berlusconi in Italy, they all talked about witch hunts against themselves. <laughs> so mm. it could be George Soros, it could be in earlier periods, the Rothschilds, those were the Jewish ones, the deep state. And so when they play the victim and people start to bond with them and believe them, then any subsequent indictments or revelations that come out are more proof of their persecution by their enemies. So that's one thing. The other is strong men make sure that they represent the nation, they, but they don't just represent the nation like democratic leaders who represent us at world summits. They embody the nation. And they take the hits on behalf of the nation. Mm. And Hitler did that very well for the German people. He convinced them he was, you know, taking the hits for them. And so when Trump says they're, you know, they're indicting me because they want to get to you, I'm just standing in the way. And he turns his being held accountable by the law into, as he says, a badge of honor. And so he becomes a hero to the people, and that distracts them from seeing that he's, he's charged with criminal offenses. Maybe kind of along that line, this next clip is not from the recent rally, but from a Fox News town hall this week. It's a new category. I don't know if you've heard this, but I came up with this one. Migrant crime. There's crime, there's violent crime, there's migrant crime. We have a new category of crime. It's called migrant crime, and it's going to be worse than any other form of crime. Is this more fear-mongering bluster, or do you think there is something more sinister at play here? I was raising my eyebrows while I was listening to that. I had not heard that before. Unfortunately for us um, and other peoples in the world who lose their freedoms, these uh, strongmen are extremely good communicators. And I was surprised in my doing my research for my book how many of them have a past in um, journalism, not just Mussolini, but Mobutu, or they're in marketing, like Trump. So migrant crime is a fantastic slogan. It's easy to repeat. And he's saying, oh, this is something new. He's basically saying, I just thought of this. It's my latest marketing thing. And we have a new category of crime, migrant crime. And you're going to see this repeated all over the right-wing media ecosystem. And that the purpose of it is to further kind of criminalize any kind of immigrant. And thus, when he, if he comes back into office and starts doing uh, things that violate human rights or violent things against immigrants, which he said he's going to do, mass portations, camps, people will be disposed to think, yeah, we needed that because of migrant crime. So it's it's very hard to, um, to to deal with these people because they are such able propagandists and marketers and sloganeers, and it has worked all over the world for a hundred years. So that's that's my reaction to his latest uh, coinage of something that will be used to justify policies. Trump did not want to cede power after the 2020 election. That culminated in his supporters at his direction to attack the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. His lies about Detroit specifically continued. We got to watch Detroit. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. They had such horrible abuse. You know, they had more ballots. Do you know this? They had more ballots than they had voters. Do you know that? This has been a common line. And if Trump wins this November, are there legitimate concerns about the end of democratic rule in the U.S.? Yes, absolutely. And Trump and his uh, many, many thousands of 
suit-wearing enablers because you need, you know, the thugs like those who assaulted the Capitol on January 6th who do the violence, but you need uh, vast numbers of people who sit in offices and wear suits and plan all of the things out, and that's what Project 2025 is. That's what somebody like Stephen Miller is. And huge amounts of forces are coming together, uh, and they are telling us they're going to end our democracy as we know it now. They're going to do, you know, mass purges of the civil service. If you intend to do unlawful things uh, you or corrupt things, uh, you need to have the right kind of civil servant there, uh, i.e. the wrong kind for um, professional ethics and morals. And so uh, I don't think many Americans are prepared because it, there's the idea it can't happen here. But the outcome of my research uh, shows that it, everyone thought that and then it happened and nobody was prepared. And so we can learn from history that it can happen anywhere. And indeed, um, nowadays, they tell you what they're going to do ahead of time. Um, and that's what Trump and his enablers are doing now. That's fascism expert and NYU professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She spoke with WDET's Russ McNamara. This is The Metro. As we come back for the last few minutes of the show here on the Metro, we do have to get into, uh, you know, some things with Mr. Ryan Patrick Cooper. Ryan, it's a Friday. What do you have planned today? Well, coming up here on In the Groove, uh, which will be 12 to 3, a personal mixtape made just for you, Detroit. Uh, We got a ton of new music starting to build this thing out. You know, a lot of it's stream of consciousness, but you need to have a path of where you're going to take people musically. And I'm excited to play a ton of new releases that came out today, Friday being the day when new music drops, but also have our first kind of in-studio, hanging out with me throughout the show guest, Vesper, who's a very talented musician from right here in Detroit, putting out their debut EP actually tomorrow, And we're going to be previewing that throughout the show today. So excited to have Vesper sitting in, sharing this music. You're going to be hearing it, uh, a lot of it, for the first time. So In the Groove, exclusive with Vesper and lots of new releases, too. That's coming up on In the Groove, Nick and Tia. Hey, thank you, Ryan. He said, Tia, you're going to get a ton of music. That's 2,000 pounds. You've got it on record. Offer and acceptance. That's what I was going to say. Where's my playlist? He's talking about playlists. Like, where's mine? Yeah. But it's okay. It's coming. I know All it's right. coming. Well, that's going to do it for the Metro for February 23rd, 2024. You can listen to recent episodes online at WDET.org. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. The show is produced by Sam Corey, David Lyons, and Jack Phil Brandt. Our technical director is Nate Bender. Music is done by Sam Bobian. Our news director is Jerome Vaughn. And our program director is Adam Fox. The Metro is a WDET production, a listener-supported service of Wayne State University. If you like what you hear and want to support the Metro, consider becoming a member at WDET.org slash donate. This is WDET-FM Detroit Public Radio, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Thanks for listening. Have a good weekend, Nick. How do you measure 2,000 digital pounds? WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new master's degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. 
More information at business.udmercy.edu.